You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007. Welcome, everybody, to episode 150 of the 602 Club. I'm so excited to be here tonight. Actually, we've done like way more episodes than that. If you put all the supplementals, I think we're at like 182, but this is officially number 150. It'll say it on the artwork. I'm so excited. Uh, and uh, what I'm really excited is, is that um, I am back in the 602 Club with some amazing people to talk about not only James Bond, but a James Bond movie in the Roger Moore era. I'm going to give it away here. I like. So, um, of course, you know, if we're going to talk some Bond, we've got to have the lovely and talented Christy Morris with us. How are you doing, Christy? Good. Glad to be back. I wasn't sure at first if you were going to say the lovely John Champion or if you were going to say me. (laughs) He does look lovely with that beard. and He does. He does. I mean, uh, I was going to say the ruggedly handsome oh, okay. John Champion. <laughs> uh, the the uh, slow gentleman. You may have seen him oh, on uh, Instagram. Uh, yeah. uh, hopefully you won't be talking as slow as the Klingons from Discovery. But um, mm, No, not quite that okay. slowly. But uh, thank you. I, I would like to, like to say that, uh, you know, for a bunch of podcasters, the three of us, we're a good looking group. We're, you know, we're a good-looking group of people, so I'm glad to be here. <laughs> We've got the glad. slow gentleman's seal of approval, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which you would think would have a really cool sound to it, but it's so slow, you can't even hear it. So slow, yeah, yeah. but I, I just, you know, I, I kind of wish that this were a video feed so the audience could join and just see... Just see how uh, how snappy we all are and uh, how excited we all are to be here. You can see oh, it in our man. faces. It's, it is great. No, it, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I can't believe that this show has been going on this long with 150 episodes now. It, it's fantastic. So really appreciate everybody's support. I just want to say a huge thank you to all the listeners. Uh, the reason we do this show is because of, of you guys. Um, y- you uh, enjoy it. Uh, You listen to it, you download it, you review it on iTunes, uh, and you've made it something that um, I continue to want to do because the conversations I get to have about all of these fandoms that we love, especially James Bond. So I just want to say a huge thank you to all of you for that, and uh, I guess here's to 150 more. So um, definitely, if you have an opportunity, hit us up on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We've got a great place for you to hit a star rating review for us that helps more people find the show. You can find all of the Trek FM shows there, uh, as well as everywhere that you can get your podcast. Uh, you can hit us up on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can be a part of the discussion on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. Uh, the best way to get there is just to go to Facebook and type Babel into the search field. Or if you're on the website at Trek.fm, uh, any of our show pages, you can hit discussion on the menu bar. 
and that'll bring you over there, and we'll let you in. And if you'd like to leave us an email, um, go over to the website again at trek.fm slash contact. Choose the 602 Club. It'll send an email to me and any of the hosts that week, and you can share what your thoughts on the episode or maybe just something you, you would like to hear us talk about that we haven't talked about on the show yet. So this is a, you know, a really interesting Bond movie because we're, you know, gone to the moon and now we got to come back. Uh, you know, and um, the, they really, as we're going to continue Bond, there is a very clear directive from on high from Michael G. Wilson that things do have to be brought down to Earth. Bond has to be brought back to Earth. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And, and honestly, I think it's very astute, the fact that they realize if we keep going that way, if we keep progressing towards our Moonraker phase, um, this is going to get so silly, it's not going to make sense to anyone anymore. Uh, and so I, I have to say that they have some real wisdom here with Bond to to make that distinction and realize, okay, we have to bring this, we have to scale it back. Yeah, I completely agree. And I really remember, you know, we've talked about this before with other films um, in the Bond franchise where it felt like they were getting a little too outlandish, either with the location or with the things the villain was trying to accomplish. Um, Moonraker really for me was like the apex of that um, with the space battles and um, it just doesn't feel like Bond when he's in space. It's almost like when you're watching a show like Friends and suddenly several of them are in London for Ross's wedding. You've only ever seen them in their niche environment like you do with Bond. Even though he travels, it still always has this, um, I don't want to say like small town feel, but you know, you... Um, connect with him more when he's a more grounded character like in For Your Eyes Only rather than Moonraker that felt like it just took it to this whole other ridiculous level. Um, so I, I like that they went a more grounded direction and I really felt even the more serious tone of this movie and liked it so much better. I, I think that the Bond films have always sort of been on a pendulum and as we've looked at all of these in order, you can see where they, they kind of get bigger and bigger and they have to outdo the previous movies and then you hit a saturation point and they have to circle back around again and sort of tone it down and, and reinvent not just the character, but the, the kind of movie it's going to be every few years. I mean, every few years, but like every 10 years or so. So with Roger Moore we had four movies right in a row that kind of kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And certainly with the success of The Spy Who Loved Me, you can see a lot of that movie's DNA in Moonraker. But then Moonraker, they pushed it maybe one step too far, or maybe three or four steps too far, and had to reel it back in. Um, maybe like moon also, steps too far? Maybe, yeah, yeah those big, yeah, yeah, yeah. long <laughs> moon steps, you know. Um, uh, but there's also happening. There's also something happening here with the time that this movie is made. 1981 feels very different from 1979 and 1977. I, I feel like we hit uh, an apex of great design and great looking Bond in Spy Who Loved Me, and a lot of that again carried over in Moonraker. This movie has a completely different feel 
and you know we don't have those glorious Ken Adams sets. Uh, the the uh, costume design is a very different thing here altogether. Uh, so, it, in a way, this is. Um, it's sort of like going from Star Trek motion picture to The Wrath of Khan. Not because we're getting a better movie, but because you can see that the studio stepped in and said, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut the budget. We're, you know, we're just going to scale things back. We're going to make things a little smaller, a little more intimate, and see what happens there. And it just has a different feel. It just feels like different people at the helm, and that's exactly what we have. And John, I'm going to agree with what you said as well as far as the Ken Adams sets and everything. We loved them, but then also with this movie, you f don't feel like it needs it. Even yep. though it's not yep. elaborate sets, you have beautiful scenery. And I mean, honestly, I loved all of the scenery from Greece. I looked at Michael, my mm -hmm. husband, and said, oh, don't you just want to be there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know... Uh... As long as there's not ABBA songs in the background, I'm Oh, I'm what good. you got against ABBA? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really good. Um, so, no, I, I the thing that, that struck me uh, uh, about the way that they approach this movie is the idea that they, they do actually cut the budget. And it's not because Moonraker didn't make a truckload of moon, money. Like, it made, you know, lots and lots of money. And again, I just, I, I really do, I have to applaud them for realizing that you can't continue down that road or you're going to wreck yourself big time uh, and you're going to destroy what makes Bond, Bond. And I think that what's so interesting is actually to watch them. I would say that the tone of this movie feels very much like the first couple of Roger Moore films where he has a bit more of the conneriness to him, like the, the writing and, and the type of character that he is. But I feel like this one, and, and maybe maybe uh, you don't feel the same way, and I'm, I'm wondering if you do, but I feel like they finally found that, that edgier tone for more, but that also felt like more um, hmm. for the most part. Uh, you know, because there were light moments that were completely Roger Moore when they're in the the car bouncing down the thing and he turns her and who doesn't love a nice ride in the country and she's like that, that they're laughing I mean because of the ridiculousness of the scene that they're in um but at the same time I also felt like it was very true to the Bond character just in general of the the guy is a stone cold killer I mean uh, he has a license to kill, and he's not afraid to use it. And I, I you know, uh, I appreciate the scene where he pushes, he kicks the car off the cliff because that's a Bond moment. I, it might not be the most Roger Moore type Bond thing to do, but it is a Bond thing to do. And I felt like Roger Moore kind of earned that throughout the film. Um, and so I don't know. To me, it felt like the best culmination of both of the types of bonds that we've had so far. I, I'm not counting Lazenby because he only has one chance. Uh, and it's no, I'm not disregarding him at all. That's my favorite movie of the series still. But just comparing people who have had multiple bonds. And I think, uh, I don't know. I felt like that they found a nice medium between the two and they were able to meld it well enough that this just kind of felt like the best version of the Roger Moore Bond to me. Hmm. I, I won't go quite so far as that. And in fact, when we get to our kind of final summation here, I've 
I, I've got some feelings about where this movie is right and where this movie is wrong. But I will say this. Um, something that I brought up in our last episode was kind of trying to take the blame off of Roger Moore because the problem with, uh, or, or I should say, I, I don't have this problem, but the problem a lot of people have with Roger Moore movies is that they assume that it's Roger Moore. And as we saw in Moonraker, for whatever ridiculous situations they created, Roger Moore is the one who is grounding those ridiculous situations. He's the one that you want to follow. He's the one that you want to believe in the scenes. The scenes are written and or directed and or produced in such a way that they get farther and farther off track. Um, in this movie, there are definitely elements that I think are poor choices, shall we say. <laughs> but I do think that Roger Moore is doing a really wonderful job for the most part in bringing it all together and in making us believe the situations that he's in. So even if it is a throwaway line, like enjoying a nice ride in the country, well, like you said, it's kind of a ridiculous car chase scene anyway. And at, at moments, it just feels stupid. And at other moments, it feels a little, you know, a, a little cringy, like <laughs> you, you can actually feel what it would be like to tumble down a mountain in a uh, de chevaux falling apart. So, um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll give him all the credit that is due to him. Uh, for doing as good a job as he possibly can. And I do think that, like you said, he did the best with what he was given that he could. And I really, I actually love that car chase scene for the scene where he says that line because I feel like her laugh in response to him is so genuine. I don't yes, feel like it yes. was written in, she's supposed to laugh here. I think she just went, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> right. So right. I loved that. I mean, who wouldn't in that scene too? Because it mm. is kind of you're like bouncing. So over, <laughs> yeah, ridiculous, mm -hmm. and you're on a soundstage, and you're just bouncing in a car. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and Rod, I'm um, Roger Moore is, is 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 so charismatic in that sense. You know, he he, and and yeah, I feel like he's the kind of guy who says that line with. What's funny is that he's not even saying that line with a completely straight face. And mm -hmm. that was what was great. Like, there's a moment where Bond is almost, well, is Roger Moore at that moment. It, they kind of like transpose with each other and it was a nice transfiguration um, moment. <laughs> I thought it was great. Right. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you guys too, because I, I, I did feel like, you know, that the movie uh, beginning with Blofeld's death and the visit to Tracy's grave does kind of signal that this movie is going to take itself slightly more seriously than we've seen before, but it's also going to hearken back to that Bond, who is a little bit more serious. Um, you know, the fact that there was a, that he had been married, we're going to connect that this is the same character. And so I wanted to ask just how that beginning worked for you guys. Um, because, I mean, it is kind of like the culmination of that storyline, finally, you know, um, the Blofeld is even in the, you know, the, the collar, uh, just like Telly Savalas was and everything. He sounds a little bit more Telly Savalas-like than Donald Pleasant's-like, um, you know, so they are, they really are connecting some things here in the Bond world, and I just, I wanted to see how you guys thought that worked, because it does kind of set the tone that even though it's this crazy action sequence, it's also kind of grounded at the same time. Like it, it's all things that 
you know, they get to do for real. You know, those are all the stunts you do for real, like you do in all these Bond movies. Uh, it, it's And it's not in space. <laughs> it's a bit of a mixed bag, you know. Um, I love that you open on Tracy's grave, and I love that you open with, again, a, a genuine moment for Roger Moore, um, a, a genuine moment for James Bond to tie back to the the the, the mythos, the storyline that we've created for this character, it's it's really great, um, and, and I like that the the date on the tombstone is 1969, uh, because that that is when OHMSS came out. So it, it it perfectly is tied in with the timeline that we know, assuming that this James Bond is a singular character that we first met in Doctor No. That's all really cool. Um, where it loses track for me is playing up the danger for comedy and again it's not roger moore it's the way that sequence is put together so being trapped in a helicopter that's out of control that is terrifying <laughs> that is i yeah i i sat there i'm sure you know palms sweating watching that scene because it was terrifying but then you introduce some silly dialogue and it takes me out of that scene. And it's not Bond having the silly dialogue, it's Blofeld. Um, and these are just some bad choices. I think of Superman 2 when I think about this. And, it, and it's a very different sensibility than the way Americans were making that movie at that, at movies at that time compared to the way that primarily Brits were making movies at that time. So there's a lot of British influence on what was happening in the Superman movies. So you you play up scenes that should have some terror in them and then sort of decide, oh, well, what we really need here is a comedic cap on this scene. And it kind I of I hope you had a it. good fright, Mr. Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? And it really takes me out of it. And, and what's the line that it, it passed me by? Um, so I'll, I'll give you a deli. And, and I, I understand that, that that's a reference to something else, but it, it just, it's like this is nonsense at that point. Not because the scene is nonsense, it's because they made bad choices when they were putting that together. The scene itself is a terrifying idea, and what a great way to start a movie. When Bond looks over and he sees the priest doing last rites, oh, you know you're in for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know you're in for it. Um, I just wish they hadn't gone the way that they had. Well, and even the video editing of that scene, at first it starts out great, like you're saying, but then the way that they cut the scenes together even felt silly. Like they yeah. were playing up, yeah. oh, Bond is going back and forth, hanging from the outside of the helicopter, trying desperately to get in the door and throw the dead guy out. And then, you know, Blofeld makes a joke about that. And, and then picking up mm -hmm. the wheelchair with the helicopter and dropping him down a, um, what do you call it? Chimney stack? Yeah, the, the smoke yeah. stack. Yeah. It yeah. just, yeah. that totally discredited, um, to quote my husband for a minute, when we were watching the movie, he said, I feel like that cheapens Blofeld as a whole, though. Yes. That yes. it makes you that, feel like everything he did before yeah. is less of a threat. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's just it. You know, they, they have the start of a really thrilling, really tense scene because the whole reason you start on that tombstone is that this is personal for Bond, you know? And then to cheapen it at the end by making it into a joke, it, it doesn't ring true. 
And, and, and again, it's very simple, little choices that were made in how to put together that scene. Because on paper, that scene is amazing. The way we start that scene is amazing. Um, I love the, the way we hold for a bit when the helicopter flies into a building. And this is the magic of the Bond films. This is the stuff that's actually being done for real and not with CGI and not with a lot of, you know, model trickery or, or uh, trick photography. Stuff that they're doing for real. And you see that thing fly in and there's this pause and then you go in to see what's happening and then there's a pause when you see it come back out. Like the timing on that is fantastic. And that actually does build the tension of the scene. But then to make a joke out of Blofeld at the end, Blofeld's still the guy who killed your wife. And that's why you were there at the beginning of that scene, is to visit her grave. So it, it, it um, yeah, it, you, well, your husband said it. It, it cheapens the moment yeah. with, out of what otherwise would have been a monumental moment. And you wish you could have just been there to, to whisper to the guys, you know, the producers and everybody and say, look, um, you know, it, it's great how it started off and this ominous feeling and that this is going to be a more serious movie. And then you mm -hmm. made it goofy again. And it's like the double taking yeah. pigeon. You didn't need it. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Just about and to apparently mention the pigeon. that's a yes. trademark of this director. Yes. Pigeons. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I think I think that both of you just kind of nailed it. The scene is great until they make it not great, and <laughs> right. right, that's the problem. Um, because you're absolutely right. It 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 should be. I mean, the movie starts letting you know we're gonna take our, ourselves a little bit more seriously, but then they kind of immediately backtrack and be like, "Well, oh, but." Then, not, not too that serious. seriously. <laughs> like, come on. Right. Like, right. you know. Um, and I, I think you're right. It, you know, I every everything that happened there, it could have been so much better if the only kind of joke is at the very end, maybe where Blofeld's like, Mr. Bond, you know, as he's falling in. <laughs> like, okay, just do that, but have the rest of it be like menacing and everything. Because I kind of like too that that Blofeld's there to do the dirty work himself. Like, he's excited that he is going to be the one to take out Bond. Like, he's planned this. He's, mm -hmm. he's I, And I thought that was great, you know, because that's a moment where you're like, oh, wow, Blofeld doesn't like Bond either. They really hate each other, you know. Uh, and who wouldn't when you, you know, Bond's the reason you're in a wheelchair. Uh, you know, so they have this vendetta against each other. But... Yeah, it just it kind of gets ruined, and and that and that's kind of frustrating. And you brought out something, Christy, that's really interesting. You know, uh, John Glenn is uh, the uh, editor uh, and been in the editor on a lot of Bond films, and they mm -hmm. promote him to director to fine finally. And he would he will be the director for four subsequent Bond films. And so I wanted to to ask you guys because part of this was to to bring. Um, a lot more emphasis on tension, plot, and character, kind of be more serious. And so I wanted to know if you guys, uh, kind of watching through the movie, did you see what he was able to bring to the table? What did you think that he did well as the director? Um, you know, do you feel like it had helped that he had been a Bond editor, so he kind of knew... Uh, the flow and the feel of things and maybe what works, what doesn't. Uh, I was wondering it, what you guys thought of John Glenn 
being promoted to director at this point? I think that he brought some really great things to the table, um, aside from the pigeon issue. Um, but um, because if you look at his credits and what he was working on editorial-wise, he worked on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and he worked on The Spy Who Loved Me. And then doing this film, which I did overall like, um, I overall feel like I like John Glenn's work. Um, I think that there, you know, of course, are some little issues that we would like to change, um, like this whole scene we just went over with Blofeld. Um, But overall, I like that he set this serious tone for his first film directing in the Bond series um, and that he seemed to want to bring Bond back to this grounded position and sort of more a commentary on yes bond is this guy with a license to kill but he is has also been through some things and lost a wife and um even though he does kick that car off the cliff you do feel like he hesitates whether that was roger moore the actor or supposed to be bond the character kind of hesitating um i i liked that it felt that way in that scene and um you know, I, I really think that he's a director I like. Like I said, it, you know, except for these tiny things here and there. I think he benefits from the Bond pedigree for sure. Um, I think the things working against him in this movie um, are things that are beyond his control. You know, we, we talked about sort of scaling down for your eyes only, uh, which generally speaking is a good idea here. Um, some of his scenes feel very pedestrian. And it's not necessarily him. The director is there to get the performance out of the actors. There are other elements like uh, cinematography, uh, director of photography, so your lighting, um, all of this other stuff to build a scene. And um, two really minor moments stuck out to me. What One very minor moment is just Bond coming back to his hotel room. Actually, the, the first one is Bond entering the hotel room. Uh, the second one is Bond coming back to the hotel room when Bibi has snuck in. Um, and maybe it's just because it's a really ugly room <laughs> that's lit really poorly. But most of those shots just are very flat. They feel like TV. However, there are other really, really minor scenes, really minor moments that play nicely. And for some reason, I, I can't figure out why. There, there's one where um, Bond is leaving the uh, ice skating rink. And he goes back out to the Lotus and he finds uh, Luigi, is his name, right? Mm -hmm. the, his contact there. Yeah. Finds him dead in the car. And all of that was shot in a way that wasn't fancy. It wasn't hit you over the head. But it played very real, and it might have been just a combination of the location, the natural lighting that they were using. Um, all of that stuff felt really grounded and um, uh, really quite believable for what was going on. So I, I'm kind of I'm kind of middle of the road on John Glenn. I, I think he's a serviceable director for this movie. I think that he's not necessarily flexing a lot of artistic muscle here. But maybe that's what they needed for him to do, was to not go crazy. You know, you, you compare this, you know, uh, step forward years later and go to a movie like uh, Skyfall, 
where we can talk about every single shot and and how it's really making something very different and artistic out of Bond um, to to really evoke mood in every single scene. You know, you could take many shots of that movie and just create a still from that, and it's something evocative and beautiful and maybe a little threatening or moody, uh, but this is not that kind of movie. Do you think that has something to do with the fact that we have transitioned and this is 81, and things are generally more drab and kind of ugh about the 80s in that sense. Like, the design work is is not outstanding. I mean, just look at the Lotus. That is not a good-looking car. A little boxy. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, everything is just kind of, um, you know, you're talking about that scene where he comes back to the hotel and and BB's there, and I'm thinking... I'm not sure how you like that design set sense ability and make it look good because it's ugly. Because paneling is paneling. (laughs) Yeah, it's just going to (laughs) be ugly. Uh, When he first walked into the hotel room, I turned to my, we had some friends over last night and we were all watching the movie together. And I was like, oh man, that room is hideous. I mean, because it is hideous. But it, that's kind of the 80s. And I, I wonder if part of that, you know, um, the more realistic nature that they're going for, if if part of that doesn't end up working against John Glenn because you're just you're in a design um, milieu that's it's not good, really. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it, it look again, uh, uh, two years before the hotel room in Rio in uh, Moonraker. That was actually a pretty nice-looking set. That was a good-looking room, you know? And most of the lighting in Moonraker, whatever location they're in, is really good. Um, This movie just doesn't look like that. And I understand it's not supposed to look like that. But remember, I called it in the last episode and said, okay, look, everything that we know of classic Bond ends here. Mm -hmm. This is where classic Bond ends. And it's a straight line from Dr. No to Moonraker, now we're starting over, and Bond becomes something else to carry us through the 80s and then kind of get rebooted again in the 90s. So this this is the baby steps leading us into that yes. new world for Bond. Um, and, and some of it works and some of it doesn't. I mean, man, that shot of Bond standing under that little, uh, that little overpass, that little tunnel, aiming his gun yes. at Locke's mm-hmm. car... Mm-hmm. So simple, so short, so great. What a, what a nicely staged, nicely acted, nicely shot moment that just makes you sort of lift up out of the seat a little bit and go, oh, that's James Bond. Well, <laughs> you and know? like a callback to the intro of every Bond movie where he faces the camera and shoots, yep, you know? Yep. That's Bingo. what it felt yes. like. Yes, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, uh, 1981 looks different from 1979. But here's the thing. If you were to say to somebody sort of casually, okay, what, what did the 70s look like, 77, 78, 79, and you sort of have in your idea this, this sort of like fake version with, with a lot of like disco shirts and bell bottoms. But what we saw in the Bond movies were actually really nice designer looking stuff. You know, I said that Moonraker looks like it's populated by Halston models, and it really does. So Bond has always been a step ahead and a step better than what the rest of the world looks like at the time. And even for 1981, you would hope that they could find a little bit of a a signature 
to put on what that world looks like. Um, but it, again, we're dealing with a direction from up high that says, tone it down, tone it down, tone it down. Ground bond, put them in the real world. So if we went a step too far with Moonraker, do we go a step too little with For Your Eyes Only? I, I think you said the word earlier, and I think it's apt. Does it make Bond's world too pedestrian? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so that there isn't enough of, a, I don't know, that Bond sheen that we kind of come to expect. Uh, even, you know, I, I would say all the way back in the Connery days, in the first couple of films, there still is that aspect there um, to them. So is this a little too, is this too real world, but not artistic enough, like, say, uh, Casino Royale? you know, that type of realism and like it feels grounded, but at the same time it also feels big and expansive and bond like, um, you know, even when he's running through an airport. Uh, you yeah. Know, I, so. I mean, this movie is a bit of an experiment. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You know, and, and, and every bond movie really is because every bond movie, like I said, is either trying to outdo or outpace or reinvent from the audience expectations set by the last one. And something that that I was going to add, too, that I felt about this one is I I think in their effort to make this more grounded, whether that was the director's choice or a group decision, um, it felt almost even like a a comment on what was going on at that time in history, um, because there was so much about the Olympics in this movie, in particular, the Winter Olympics. You know, they had. I was like, Michael, they've got it all. My husband, I was like, they've got bobsledding, they have skiing, they have skiing and shooting a gun, they have, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, rock climbing not included, but also action. Um, you know, it, it just felt like ice skating. I almost forgot. Um, you know, we all know how huge ice skating Hockey. got in the 80s, yeah, yeah. I yep. mean, uh, my friend last night, she turns to me and goes, there are a lot of outdoor sports going on yeah. in this movie. <laughs> Hockey, yeah. <laughs> like, who knew Bond was an outdoorsman? Um, you know, yeah. so, no, I, I agree. And I like what you said, John, that, you know, all Bond movies tend to be an experiment, but I really do, f- I, I feel like you feel the experiment in this one. And that's not necessarily yes. a bad thing, you know, um, Trying something new in a franchise that's this old and doing it in a way that doesn't turn it into Moonraker, not a bad choice, you know, if you ask me. You know, this is definitely more the direction you would hope Bond would kind of continue than the outlandishness of what we had before. It's like, a, you know, the, when we're talking about the the scales here, I think this more evens out the scales to what you'd want than, say, like a Moonraker that feels very one-sided. Um, and so the experiment, you know, whether everything about it works or not, I think it's definitely kind of getting us back to something that feels a bit more like a Bond equilibrium than, than maybe we had, you know, um, previously in the last film. So... We, we've got three different Bond women to talk about tonight. And I wanted to, we'll, we'll start with, I guess in, I'm ranking them important, so we'll go to the most important at the end. Uh, but I wanted you to talk about BB. Um, and I just, 
can I just say I love the way that they deal with her character here because I love that Roger Moore realizes, as he says in the um, the extras, I, I realized even then I was a little long in the tooth to be with somebody <laughs> who is younger than 20. Um, so the, the way I just, the meta nature of that whole thing is that's what makes it work. Like it's cringeworthy, but he plays it so well. And he comes off like her grandpa and it's kind of funny. <laughs> You feel like he's just going, bless your heart. This That's not going to yes, happen. Just bless your little heart. <laughs> and then she has that one really awkward line when um, he's joking with her. Well, this other guy that I have to compete with for your affections. Um, and she says, I could just eat you up alive. I was like, oh, Lord, this is terrible. Yeah, I, ugh, I, I'm a little creeped out by the whole thing. Um, she's cute. Uh, I like, like a baby. that. <laughs> yeah right. I, I well, I, and I like that she has some unpredictability and some sexual agency. You know, like that. That's I, fine. Okay, so that's who the character is. I also feel like she is a bit. I mean, by nature of the character, she is a bit owned by the men in this movie, like Christados. Um, and I understand that is a plot point and that that's something that kind of moves the action in this. But uh, that that felt a little weird to me. Her immediate infatuation with Bond felt really weird to me. And I also felt bad for Bond slash Roger Moore in this because I thought, all right, if we are dealing with an aging Bond here, can we deal with that in a little more dignified way? You know, um, Instead of I, making I'm, him feel like a grandfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll we'll get to Cassandra Harris next, but th- that was such a good scene in this movie um, to, to have him paired up with somebody who was a little more equal, had a complex background. Um, I, I just felt sort of weirded out by all the scenes with Bibi. Even though there's something about her that I like, and and it's fun and refreshing. And I know they're going for a little bit of a comedy angle there and a little bit of a commentary on Bond getting older. But I also think about, okay, well, I'll mention it again, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. There you have aging heroes and you're dealing with that in a dignified way. This, yeah, I laughed, but then I felt a little weird about it afterwards. You're just sitting there, especially in the scene where she suddenly comes out of the bathroom in her towel and jumps in his bed and goes, okay, I'm ready. You're cringing yeah, yeah. a little. You're like, oh, yeah, this it, is just n- wrong. I can't. Mm-mm. Yeah. You're like, really? You're really into this guy? Yeah. For real. But <laughs> I will add, though, from the female perspective, that Every woman has been there where you have a crush on somebody that's a lot older than you and you can't really explain why. And you're like, he's just <laughs> like, I still think Sean Connery is sexy, but he could probably be my grandpa. Right. <laughs> so I kind of understand. He could be her. your grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I it something that struck me as I was watching the film and this actually came around I think for the first time because there's the scene when they're uh, in the monastery and she says something to Christados where she says just because I'll never give you what you want and I'm wondering if her flirtation with Bond is her way of getting back at him for kind of she you know he's the sponsor she knows why he's sponsoring her he's hoping she'll give it up to him 
and her way of getting back at him is to go at Bond, who is relatively closer to his age than hers. Um, and so she throws herself at him, making him jealous, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, is, a, is a way to get back at him. And like you said, John, I felt like it gave her some agency where she's controlling mm-hmm. who you know, gets to be uh, a part of her temple. Um, and, you know, um, it's not going to be you. It, I'd, I'd, ra- I'd, I'd do Bond before I'd do you. Like, and mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of, that's a, that's a, it's kind of a creepy thing, right? But yeah. it, it's still at the same time, it's her way of controlling the situation. Um, yeah. And I thought that that's semi-interesting. I do think, though, you're absolutely right. It is kind of sad that... It makes Bond sad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, like I don't want sad Bond, you know. Um, <laughs> right, and I don't want right. Grandpa Bond. Um, so yeah. you know, yeah. let's. And I think you're absolutely right because you put him with Cassandra Harris, who, funny enough, is actually married to Pierce Brosnan at this point, uh, who visited the set, and they kind of put in the back of their mind, "Ooh, this Pierce, he might be a." He he could he could be mm-hmm. something for us someday maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. When, mm-hmm. I do have to say one her makeup is awful in the first scene <laughs> that she's in. It is just absolutely <laughs> awful because once she takes that off, she is this gorgeous woman, like she's yeah. beautiful. And the yeah. scene that she has with Bond is so interesting and so layered because you know she's with Columbo, but she's using like Columbo and her are using Bond, you know and. Um, Bond thinks he's using her and like there's this all this there's this like this stuff going on in the background with those characters that's all very adult uh, and it works it's great stuff I I really liked their chemistry together and then them walking on the beach which is beautiful Um, you know like they have a very adult relationship of two people who had transaction sexual favors to each other but it's not just about that like they're 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 creating a relationship there of trust that was very interesting. And then, of course, you know, Death by Dune Buggy, That's it's too bad because I really liked her character in the film. Yeah, I really wanted to know more about her. I, I, I liked the idea that she was not who she seemed. Um, just that, that little reveal was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, again, a more age-appropriate match for bond um not not that that's the be all end all uh just the the relative age but there was something about the sophistication the maturity there that was really interesting and and they seem to be good foils for each other so yeah you know um too bad we didn't get to see more of her but it, it that was at least something pivotal in the movie so it was it, it was a valuable time for her to be on screen and you can see the huge gap in maturity between her and bb because everything about bb's behavior is like that of a teenage girl you know mm-hmm. her the way her hair is always her bang straight across with her little braid in the back and um, you know, she's very bubbly and um, goofy. And then you see him, by contrast with Cassandra, who's very serious. You see her get in this tiff with Columbo in public, basically calling him a dirty, rotten man. Um, and then have her and Bond have this exchange where he's basically up front saying, 
I'm not going to treat you like that. Um, I thought was really nice and definitely gave their whole back and forth, even though, like you said, Matt, they were just using each other. They knew it. It was consensual on both sides. It was not a little girl trying to bag Bond. It was the two of them going into it saying, I just want to hang out with you for the night. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Why don't you come in for a nightcap? Okay, cool. Um, And then, uh, yeah, I definitely loved the reveal that you're not expecting of her switching. You know, and I think he even says you're losing your accent. (laughs) Yep. And he goes, what is that, Manchester? (laughs) (laughs) It was cute. And so, yeah, I I was sad that she had to die, but I saw it coming. Yeah, she she really is. Uh and um yeah, it is just too bad that she doesn't make it in the film. I'm wondering what you guys thought about Melina um and Carol Bouquet. Did I say that right? Did I get that right, bouquet. John? Bouquet. Bouquet. Like a bouquet, bouquet? perhaps. <laughs> yes, but, I'm not yeah. sure. I just and you're so much better at the French than I am. <laughs> but um yeah, you know, uh, interestingly uh she had auditioned for Holly Goodhead uh, and and didn't make it. It was unsuccessful, obviously. Um, And I'm wondering what you thought of her. Obviously, um, probably the best hair. I mean, mean, that hair. Whew, goodness. And, and you know, not... She is kind of a vision on screen. She is gorgeous and definitely fits every um, model of what you think of as Bond girl. Uh, so I'm just wondering what you, you, you thought of her because I, uh, she has a pretty interesting story. Yeah, uh, she's beautiful for sure. And she, I, I believe I read that, uh, she and Lynn Holly Johnson in real life are only about a year apart, but the way the characters are portrayed, again, she has this kind of maturity that you believe being in that world and being around Bond, uh, that, that made me accept their sort of little romance a bit more than I did with uh, uh, with Bibi. Um, her backstory is very cut and dried, very straightforward. It's exactly what the movie needs to kick off the action of the movie. Um, so I, there's really not a mystery there, but I like that there's a recurring theme in the movie about her trying to take revenge. Mm-hmm. Now, there is something a little strange about that, where then the the revenge, the killing, kind of becomes the uh, the the guy's game in this, where it's almost the Bond's words to her about uh, if you set off on a mission of revenge, dig two graves. Yes. Wise words, thoughtful. I like that that's something that comes back again later in the movie. What I don't like is that it kind of feels like the guys have to step in to protect her. She's just as invested in this more so than anybody else. And you know what? If she needs to have that, then maybe she needs to have that. Um, She doesn't get that last shot (laughs) that, you know, that, that maybe she should. So, um, yeah, but I, I, I like her, I like her a lot. Um, I think she, she would have been wrong for Holly Goodhead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is the right casting for her in this movie. I agree that it was the right role versus Holly Goodhead for sure. I think that she, this actress has this quality about her that is very, um, commanding of attention Maybe even for me, it's just her facial features. She just seems very serious in general. 
Although we do have that scene with the car bumbling down the hill that's really funny. Um, overall, you know, I feel like she does a great job portraying a girl who's been through something traumatic. You know, having your parents shot in front of you is a pretty difficult thing to deal with for anybody. And she seemed like she was pretty young, like maybe um, not just out of college, but, you know, like maybe around my age or something. Um, and um, but I do like that in contrast to what you're saying, I didn't get that she doesn't get to have that shot because it's a man's game. I felt like it was more Bond himself wanting to protect her because she was young and feeling like, I know you've been through a lot and I know you really want this, but you don't really want this. And I'm trying to tell you that you don't want to live with that. You think that it's going to satisfy this feeling to avenge your parents, but it in the end probably won't make you happy. I think that's fair. Yeah. Well, and... I mean, as silly as the scene is at the beginning of the film, do you does Bond really feel like taking care of Blofeld in that revenge sense satisfied him? You know, um, I think we that's probably what they're going for. Although they made that scene too silly to really connect as well as possible here, and so I, I do think though. I mean, obviously for Bond, taking care of Blofeld does more than just you know, get revenge. It's taking care of a supervillain who's, you know, done a lot of really bad things in the world and his license to kill should take care of that. Um, but I, I don't think it gave him, it, it doesn't change the fact that Tracy's dead. Right. You know, um, this will not bring Molina's parents back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I, I do, um, I really like her in the role. I, she, she has a way of acting. She's very reserved in her expression. Um, and I thought that was an interesting choice for the actress to make. You know, she's not overly uh, gregarious on screen for the most part. She um, She's very commanding and she feels like she's very in control of herself, uh, which makes sense for somebody who uses a crossbow where you kind of need to be very much in control of yourself uh, to make your shot. Love a good um, crossbow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also, I, I I do have to say what I like um, about her is the fact that she is very much a part of the plot and refuses to be told what to do. She, uh, you know, Bond tells her that, that uh, she should leave. She doesn't want to leave. Um, he's able to convince her to leave, but I don't think if she didn't want to leave, she wouldn't. You know, she doesn't seem like the kind of character who gets told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, she's already kind of, quote-unquote, disobeyed Bond once by going after them still. Um, and I think he was able to get her to trust him, and that's why she leaves uh, and goes to Greece. Um, and then, of course, you know, they work on things together, uh, the, the the big plot points together, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and... I just, I, I liked her character. She has a, you know, as Bond women go, she has a lot more to do in the plot. Um, and the fact that she gets to be there in the end, too, um, was nice. And, you know, I, I also like that her crossbow is uh, actually used well, you know, like, um, so just parts about her character actually work, I felt, for the most part. Um, 
and I, I just, she's, she is beautiful. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, so we, uh, we, we have a scoundrel and a villain in this film, and I wanted to talk about both of them because I really, Columbo to Paul as Columbo. Um, I really, again, this is the part where I feel like they're bringing bits and pieces from other Bond movies in, but uh, he feels like Tracy's father from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He's the scoundrel. He's the, you know, the... Uh, underlord kind of guy like the the underworld kind of guy that also has kind of a heart of gold like he he does you know he he brings in like he says he brings in gold he does you know the, all that kind of stuff underhanded but he doesn't do heroin you know he he's he's not that kind of of mobster and i just i really I, his character and his interaction with bond and everything i really enjoyed that relationship and that yeah, just I always find it fun when Bond works with kind of the more seedy type that has the heart of gold mm-hmm. I was gonna say too I love their whole introduction to each other it misleads you because you think at first that Christados uh, you know BB sponsor is the good guy who is working with Bond to try and take down the dove who you're kind of led to believe is Columbo at that dinner scene. Um, but then you get to know that Columbo is not at all the guy that Bond is looking for. Um, and that he then turns around and becomes Bond's partner. And I love the scene between he and Columbo um, on his boat where he offers him a glass of whiskey and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically, uh, so we're on the same page, right? And Bond's like, I'll wait to have the drink later. And, you know, he convinces him. No, 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 we're cool. Dude, I, I love Topol so much. I love uh, Columbo so much. Um, I, I want to give that man a hug in this movie. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he, first of all, he's Dr. Hans Sarkov from Flash Gordon. Um, yeah, he's also Tevya from Fiddler on the Roof. But he is so awesome and in a movie where i felt like there are moments i was kind of losing interest he absolutely is so dynamic so fun that that first meeting that he has with bond face to face where he pours him a drink is gold it is so good and um yeah he's just magnetic on screen he's incredible every scene that he was in i was watching him even if roger moore was on the screen with him and um, I, I wish that I wish there had been a spinoff movie, the the Adventures of Columbo, uh, other Columbo, right? Yeah. Yeah. This Columbo, not not that Columbo. We know, yeah. I have yeah. one question for you. So Bond is kind of responsible in some ways for Cassandra, or for Cassandra Harris's uh, Countess's death. Do you not feel like he maybe should not like Bond? A little bit more than he like because it seems I, I mean was their relationship more of like a partnership with benefits than like an actual like you know uh true relationship um or you know because that's the what i love his character but as i watched it this time I was like he should be pretty pissed at bond for getting his woman killed yeah. I mean, uh, unfortunate, again, the, it's this Bond trope of the sacrificial lamb, and we're not supposed to ask questions like that. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> bad. Oh, dang it. Yeah. Sorry. My <laughs> <Right>. bad, John. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. That's a, a, a shortcoming in the script, probably. Or if there was a scene like that, then uh, it, it was not to see the light of day. But you get the feeling, though, from that dinner scene again, where um, sh- the countess insults him and calls him a you know dirty, rotten scoundrel. Basically, you feel like he must have said something pretty, um, you know, lewd to her to make her have that reaction that loudly at dinner. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel like they kind of give you the vibe that they're not really in a relationship. That it probably is just a um, they see each other now Business. and then. Yeah more of a business transaction. Yeah. Which I mean and again that I think that reading makes it make sense and obviously, you know, he wouldn't be happy that she is gone or anything, but I think he also understands the life they're in. So maybe that's why, you know, I I will just I'll put that in my head canon. He'll find um, another one. Yeah, I get well, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> um she's pretty uh, yeah. She's pretty hot. So, um, Julian Glover uh, as Aristotle Christosis. I, I don't know. Like he's not bad. Uh, I don't feel like he's like the best Bond villain. But I. This is funny. Where I feel like this movie almost isn't as much about the Bond villains as it is kind of about Bond and Molina and Columbo, like, this movie seems to be much more about the heroes than it is necessarily the villain, and I, I don't know, like, he's not incredible or anything, but I don't seem to really care. You know, it, it was a cool idea to fake out the audience, that, that you think that Christados is a good guy, and then he's ultimately going to be the bad guy. So I like the idea that they did that, and I like watching it again and seeing if there are any clues or seeing what information Bond is keeping to himself, so that He's not, you know, fully trusting Christados, but I do think it was a mistake to not further develop Christados. We know what he's after, but that's kind of about it. And we still don't know why he's sponsoring BB. And we still, Mm -hmm. you know, not that we should really care. It's just um, there is less to him than there should be. I was really more interested in the scene with General Gogol uh, the, the the first scene with him on the phone and the, the woman comes in and they're trying to make it sexy. I'm just like, all right, come on. Again, you're just pushing the joke too far. This is unnecessary. But the last scene with General Gogol and Bond throws the ATAC off the, uh, off the mountain. Um, I actually really like that more than any of Bond's encounters with Christados because it actually said something. Mm-hmm. Um, and for this to be 1981 and we're still in the thick of it with the Cold War, um, for that to be a symbolic thing that says, hey, we cannot be at odds with each other if we decide to just literally break, <laughs> literally take apart the system that is making us be at odds with each other. Um, I, I, I really like that. And I'd forgotten that that movie ended that way. So it was cool to revisit that. Yeah, I like that you included that because I felt like Gogol was more a villain than Christados because of that whole scene, you know, with Christados and his other guy um, commenting on it. Well, it's sure taking him a long time to get here as he's flying in on his helicopter. But But the fact that they're waiting 
for this guy, Gogol, to come in on a helicopter and it's taking a while. Um, it just automatically feels like he has more status than Christados does. And, you know, sort of like the big guys coming home kind of thing. You know, now you better be afraid. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I just felt like you said, too, like Christados doesn't get enough development. It, he really... Um, I like the fake out thinking that he's the good guy at first and then changing into he's actually the one you're looking for. But it does feel like either Bond is not asking enough questions or um, they just didn't care as much about the villain in this movie as they did about, like you're saying, Matt, with developing the heroes um, or having Columbo as kind of the guy in between that is a, you know, scoundrel um, but isn't all around a bad guy. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, uh, Gogol is somebody that we've seen and it had to work with Bond, and so I kind of love that he has the little laugh at the end, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, because there's this relationship, there's this uh, chemistry that's happening between him and Bond, um, and it's also, uh, it, it seems to kind of reference almost subtly the changing relationship between the USSR and the United States at that point in history. Like, things are starting to become a little less bleak in the Cold War. Slightly. I mean, it, we're still in 81 here, so it, it's going to take a while. But this whole, you know, uh, movement uh, in this, this, this decade is going to move us toward uh, a de-escalation between these two countries. Um, and it, you kind of feel it here and it's kind of fun to get that at the end, but I like that you guys are talking about like the, in, at the same time, this is still the villain. Like this is the big bad villain still like, and, and we can't let our guard down necessarily. Um, and yeah, I, I like the way that Bond takes care of it. So, um, oh. yeah, Christodos is, you know, and I like Julian Glover. He's great in, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's, he's yes. been in plenty of other things, you know. A good actor, um, always liked him. They actually considered him from Bond back in the day. But by the time they wanted him, they felt like he was just a little bit too old um, for the role. And uh, before that, he had been too young for the role. So they finally found him as, as the villain instead. So I, I want to ask you guys, the, the kind of just the, like a free-for-all, the music, the theme, and the rest of it, was there anything that we didn't talk about? Um, I thought the most interesting thing is that they had wanted, you know, uh, the theme song, they wanted Blondie to do it. Uh, and they even recorded a song for Your Eyes Only, and then they were, found out that they, you know, wanted them to use the song that Bill Conti had written. And they were like, well, no, we're not doing that. So they got Sheena Easton to do the song and uh i wanted to get your guys opinion on that the music and like i said just anything else that uh did we miss anything i do have to add the big thing i almost forgot and sorry i had a, an epiphany um did you realize either one of you that tywin lannister was one of the assassins in this movie <laughs> what his name is charles dance that's the actor um, uh -huh. if you watch Game of Thrones, you know who Tywin Lannister is, the father of all the evil Lannisters. Um, yeah, he is one of the, um, you know, lesser assassins that you only see for a couple scenes, but he gets scenes with Roger Moore. Wow. Yeah. Nice, a young nice. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that hit, made me excited. Um, I looked at my husband and went, oh my gosh, it's Tywin. <laughs> He's going, what? Um, 
but I, I did want to add the the couple other things that I liked about this movie. Um, I do I do have to say again, I loved the scenery. Um, Greece was beautiful. Um, I was really curious about the scene with Tofana. I had never heard of it before, so I looked it up while I was watching it. Um, it's a mountain range in Italy because I didn't realize that there were snow-capped mountains like that in Italy. Oh, I always yes. think of it Northern as Italy rolling hills or cities, but yeah. Um, and then I wanted to know what you both thought of the silly pool party at Gonzalez's house. <laughs> That looked like teen beach movie. And then oh, also yes. the identograph. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the identograph. That is ridiculous. Mr. Potato um, Head needs his angry eyes. Yeah, right, right. And I, and I love the giant data disks that uh, Q is pulling out to use oh, yeah. that thing. Um, let's see. And not only is that pool party ridiculous, it's got the dumbest song playing in the background and uh matt you asked what we thought about the music in this okay the title track is great sheena easton is fantastic the rest of the music in this movie uh made me want to turn off the sound and just watch this only with subtitles Mm -hmm. yep um yeah look bill conti has done some great stuff in the past um i mean he did the music for rocky you know come on that that's that's nothing to sneeze at but um my god this is a horrible soundtrack um and it it really colored my view of the entire movie simply because it was so poorly scored and edited uh for for those places that you've got music so um that was a big miss on this and my vote was actually Blondie. Oh yeah, because I haven't heard that track yet. So you you preferred their uh, their for your eyes only. I preferred Blondie's version. Yeah, cool. I I'm gonna to listen it to that today, more, um, and I I like Sheena Easton's version. In fact, last night I was saying how I liked this song, and my life was like, I can't tell if you're kidding or not. Like, no, it's like <laughs> it's perfect because it's so '80s, you know, and it, it works so well. And I just I like. I mean. If, like Bond songs, you know, that you might have on your playlist. This is one I don't mind playing on an actual, you know, like everyday playlist that I might listen to. Um, I just kind of like the song. Uh, but cool. you, I'm the rest of the music, like you said, um, it, it starts in that first scene with Blofeld and everything, and it's just so 80s. Uh, it's bad. Um, and I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't love it. Oh, I did like the contrast of having a ski chase this time instead of a boat chase. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that's what I I did want to say. I think most of the uh, action sequences in this movie are actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mm -hmm. the one with the skis and the fact that they went down the bobsled thing and and all of that uh, was really fun. Uh, And crazy and out there and and you know knowing that they did all of that for real is just insane um you know and the I rock climbing that's yeah the rock climbing done for real again i mean that's some crazy rock climbing because um you know as the i was watching the extras today and uh the man and i forget his name the stuntman who did all of those stunts for all of these Bond movies, the, the Roger Moore era, these ridiculous outlandish stunts, 
you know, he said, you know, as a climber, it, every it goes against every single thing inside of you to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're taught not to let go. You know, everything about you is trying to stick to the wall that you're climbing, and so, um, yeah, it was it was scary for them. That was one of the scarier stunts that they've done because if you don't get it just right, um, you can die. Uh, you can crack your back or your neck and die very easily. So, um, I yeah, I really actually enjoyed the stunts and the and and the the chase work. Um, you know, I felt like they knew. In the car chase, when to make it a little bit silly, uh, and then I felt like they also knew when to take it a little bit more seriously, uh, and I I liked the ski work that they did and all that stuff, and so um, yeah, I don't know. This is I, I guess it's time to get to it. Um, Christy, if you're gonna rate for your eyes only, um, where where do you end up? Sure. So I feel like out of all of the things that I've said. Um, I, that overall, I still really like this movie. And I, I like that you had even said at one point, Matt, that you felt like it was a second behind The Spy Who Loved Me, that it, it is a really good film in the sense of the scenery, the um, way that it was shot. Um, you know, the music for me was not great. I don't think for any of us, but I also didn't really even like the intro song. Although I think that she's a good singer. I like Blondie's version better. Um, but I felt like the, the whole plot together works and you do have those moments of holding your breath, waiting to see what's going to happen. And um, the fake out of thinking that, Christodos is the good guy and then he turns into the bad guy and that you think Columbo is a bad guy and he turns to kind of a good guy. Um, it, I think that overall for me, it's really a seven out of 10 for my rating. Um, at first I was going to go with something silly to rate with, but then I said, I don't think this movie was that silly like Moonraker was. So I'm going to go seven out of 10 doves. Ooh, nice. All right. Um, this movie was a bit of a challenge, I think, um, and I'm going to be a little contrarian, I think, in our uh, our summation here. Um, one thing that I did want to point out, that scene of uh, Bond and Melina being dragged through the water behind Christado's yacht, and uh, every time uh, he hits coral and you see the... the scrape through the shirt and the blood come out like that's a really intense scene that that just looked painful yeah we know it's not roger moore but it, it just looked painful well and, and did you uh, know that intense. they they had to film that on a dry wet set like a, a set that's mm. that mm-hmm. they're um they're not even underwater whatsoever um they're they manufacture that whole thing they put them in like uh stretch makeup and yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously well, wait, wait, when it's yeah, yeah wait, when it's Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet yes. Yes. yeah which was uh, crazy but, I mean yeah, just yeah, like because yeah. yeah. you honestly I think it looks great that's one of the yeah. places where the special effects work that they do uh, here is is they're mm-hmm. doing a really good job and those sharks mm-hmm. look great yes <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. they did animatronic yes, sharks yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I appreciate what this movie is trying to do, which is to, again, ground Bond after what we just saw in Moonraker. Um, it, it's a very straightforward story. The the characters, for the most part, are believable if, you know, dealing with the character like Christados is not really enough. 
to really sink your teeth into. I think the problems with this movie are not the cast. I think everybody's fine in it. Um, I think that John Glenn is doing as good a job as he can, given some of the limitations we discussed earlier in the show. I think the soundtrack is the worst soundtrack I've ever heard in a Bond movie, uh, just hands down, um, no question about it. And I, I would even say that rivals uh, Never Say Never Again, <laughs> which has a pretty terrible soundtrack. Um, I, I wish that Bond had been treated a little differently in this movie because it feels like they don't entirely know what to do with him. He has some great moments. He has some terrible moments. And I feel like, again, it's a little undignified the way that they deal with addressing his aging. It's not that we can't address that. It's just we got to find the right tone to do it in. So, um, I, oh, and, and I love Topol. He, he's just so fantastic in this movie that he, he kind of raises my ranking a little bit. Um, but look, here's the thing. I, I was absolutely joyful about The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, Moonraker ended up ranking higher than I thought I would because the more we talked about it, the more I appreciated the things I got right and I appreciated it being kind of the end of an era. This movie is a reboot, a restart, a, a, a reimagination of what we're going to do with this character for the next few movies. So it is an experiment. But I, for me anyway, it doesn't really come together. So I'm actually going to rank this uh, four. I'm going to rank this four out of ten for Du Chevaux, uh, that little yellow car that they're uh, driving at the beginning. And uh, yeah, that's where I'll land. With, uh, with this one, you know, I think that you're right, John. There is a sense of tonal incongruity in the movie. Um, it can't quite decide if it wants to be so serious or if it wants to be what Bond has been so far with Roger Moore over the last couple of movies. And it's struggling to, to find that. I like what they do with Bond in the seriousness and giving him a more of an edge, and I think for the most part that stuff works for me really well. Um, it's the parts as you we and and we have all mentioned. It's it's the aging of Roger Moore that they don't handle very well, um, and then it's the tone at the very beginning with making that a joke where it shouldn't be a joke. And honestly, I feel like that those are the tonal issues. Like when you when I'm thinking through this movie, those are the ones. And if you had fixed those, this movie would have probably been perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that sense, like it, you would have gotten exactly what you were looking for. Unlike you, though, John, I I I would probably watch this one over, say, like a Moonraker or something like that, um, just because I I enjoy the the less silly nature and and the more serious nature. Um, but I completely agree with you. I can't deny that this movie doesn't quite get right what it wants to do. And that's too bad um, because this probably could have been Roger Moore's maybe best film if they had gotten those tonal issues right. It really could have. Um, but they don't. And so I, I think if I'm being very fair, I'm going to be in the middle of you guys, a little bit more in the middle. Um and I think that this is probably this is probably six point five 
<laughs> lost nuts. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, top to Paul was just, he, he was just losing them all over the place uh, or tossing them all over the place too. Um, but you know, it's the pistachios. Yeah. It's 6.5 pistachios because it almost like it, it, it could have been seven if there had just been some of those tonal issue shifts and it could have been like a nine if it, they had completely got all of those worked out, but it just doesn't. And, and, but as these type of films go, sadly, I think we do have to say, and for at least for me right now, this is still Roger Moore's second best outing as Bond. Um, and then it would probably be Moonraker after that is third for me. So, I mean, you know, and, and when I think of the films that are coming up, when we've got, you know, Octopussy and uh, A View to a Kill... The, we'll talk about those later. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yes, we will. Yes, yes. Uh, I just this is. I mean, when I thought of uh, when I I saw that I had fortuitously and felicitously uh, set this as the 150th show for the 602 Club, um, I was ecstatic uh, because I, I I couldn't think of maybe a better way to celebrate what we do here on the 602 Club when just incredible guests like both of you and talking about a franchise that we've been lovingly, I think, working our way through the entire thing, uh, bumps and all. And and that's just what we do here. And we trying to find the joy in films that are awful and trying to find the the um, the fairness in films that everybody says are great, you know, we and and all doing it with with fun and a positive attitude. And so that's what we're all about here on the 602 Club. And Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, I really want to say thank you to our associate producers. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson have been here as associate producers on this show pretty much the whole time. And a huge thank you to them for continuing their support of this show and the network. Um, As everybody knows, Trek FM is growing. Uh, We've got uh, a lot of new shows because Discovery is out now. Uh, as well as every other show that we still do on the network. And that is an enormous, humongous enterprise. Uh, We can't do it without you. So I hope you'll go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become of our team and just make sure that all of the content that we have coming to you each and every week can keep coming to you. Uh, And and what we love about it is that we do this for you ad-free because of the support of listeners just like you. Uh, you just get great content without stuff you don't want to listen to. So, again, patreon.com slash trek.fm is where you can become part of our team. Uh, Christy, fantastic to have you back here uh, talking some Bond. Uh, you may be back, uh, you know, soon to talk something non-Bond, which will be fun, uh, as we maybe consider some stranger things. Uh, but... Uh, where can everybody find you if they'd like to talk Bond or anything else that you love? Sure. So I am mostly on Instagram and Twitter at morechristy, M-O-R-R instead of M-O-R-E. Um, and I talk Bond, Star Wars. Um, I guess I'll, I'll be talking some Trek now, too, since I need to watch Discovery. Um, and uh, all kinds of things, including some stranger Demogorgons coming up soon, maybe. Um, and uh, also, I write for a site called fangirlnextdoor.com. And John, 
Uh, before we get out of here, I know that you guys are very busy over there at, at Mission Log, of course, with Discovery coming on. And uh, let everybody know about what you guys have going on with that and uh, where they can also catch up with you if they maybe want to talk a little Bond or, uh, you know, some slow gentleman tips. <laughs> yeah, just a, just a little bit happening here. Uh, so missionlogpodcast.com is the way to find us either through you know Twitter, Facebook, or give us a call or shoot us an email. Missionlogpodcast.com is the place to find out everything that we're doing. Um, in fact, with the launch of Discovery, the launch of a live version of Mission Log. So we'll have the regular Mission Log every Thursday and every Tuesday night, as long as Discovery is uh, coming out with their new episodes, we'll have a live show and uh, people can call in, uh, they can video chat with us, they can send us messages. Um, we'll just make it a, a really tight hour-long show and then that'll be archived on Facebook and YouTube and uh, also released as an audio cast, um, a spoiler-filled talk about discovery. So keep that in mind if you decide to tune in. So um, yeah, or you just want to talk to me about Bond and things that are non, uh, non-Trek related, then at DVD Geeks is the place to do that. And yeah, sure, if you want to have a little fun, Instagram, at Slow Mo Gentleman. And you really do want to have fun, I promise you. I, <laughs> I love I love John Slow Mo Gentleman. Uh, true. It, it, it cracks me up every time. But I don't uh, I don't publish a lot, but it's it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's totally <laughs> worth it. So check it out. Um, <laughs> oh gosh, but um, you could find me on uh, Twitter, Matt Rushing Zero Two. I'm on Instagram. I don't do any cool slow mos for you. I'm sorry, Matt you Rushing could. Zero Two. You could. There, yeah, I I might try. Um, I'll I'll see. I mean, I have so much to live up to, though. I just you know, <laughs> like, it's got to be perfect uh, if I'm gonna go up the slow mo gentleman. So, um, okay. <laughs> you could find me here on the network with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine on the Orb, as well as over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got a couple of shows: Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills talking Star Wars, which is a blast, and of course Owl Post with Dre Kaufman talking about each and every chapter of the Harry Potter series. And one more show I'm doing, I do it with my good friend Courtney, uh, and we talk about film through the lens of faith, and that's on a show called Cinema Stories. Uh, all of those shows uh, you can find on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.